Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. I'm so excited for you to hear today's guest. You know, I discovered his work because my partner Kylie sent it over and said, I think you're really going to love what this man has to say. And immediately I downloaded it. It was called The Alchemy of Initiation. And that work has inspired a lot of my solo episodes and a lot of the conversations I've been having with you. I was immediately captivated, just taken away, you know, because he put into words what I couldn't label, what I'd never heard articulated. You know, when our reality that we don't know how to label it or or organize it in language. And I think that's so much of what pulls us to teachers, to books, to writers, you know, to all these different people who are essentially guides for us because they are they're creating making sense of the human experience. And I've been really enamored with the mystery that is life that, you know, we're on this planet and there's all these magical things occurring and we miss them so often and and we don't realize just how crazy it is everything that's going on that we're in the middle of the solar system on this one little planet you know you just think about that you know as as i'm sure you know i have a real nerd out when it comes to psychology when it comes to research when it comes to all of that stuff and what i love about Francis Weller's work, that's the guest today, is he's a psychotherapist, he's a writer, he's a soul activist, and I love that merger of psychotherapy with what is beyond, with the soul. I really think that's something we all, uh, on a very unconscious and, and often conscious level, are seeking more understanding about that. You know, are we the soul that just does a journey in this body, and why is it that we get these nudges, you know, these intuitive nudges and that that change our lives, that save our lives or try to, and we often don't listen. And I think it's about learning to to figure out where that voice lives, learning to listen to it. And so a lot of his work really for me has invited more of that dance between the mind and the heart, not to choose between the two, but that both must coexist. I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to talk to you about the greatest struggle that people have in dating. And that is asking the right questions. And not just the right questions, but asking hard questions. Questions that determine if someone wants what you want, what you are, what your relationship status is, that that deepen vulnerability and intimacy. And ultimately, asking the right questions allows you to get to know someone on a deeper level, gets to know their values, get to know whether they're a good fit for you. Now, I recognize that When I get feedback on asking questions, people say, that's too hard to ask, or it's too soon to ask that, or whatever the excuse or thought or feeling or fear might be. And so I thought, shit, let me ask the hard questions. And that's why I created Create the Love Cards. Create the Love Cards is created with such intention for you to deepen your conversations on dating. And because of that, the deck, when you open it up, it fits two smartphones, So you can put your phone inside the box as you take the cards out so you can both be present. Now, if someone doesn't want to play, I'm like, swipe left. That's a red flag. Like, who doesn't want to play a game? Second, I've got it in four sections. So we've got foreplay, diving deeper, too much information, because would it be a deck from me if it didn't have TMI? And 
building chemistry. So there's four sections for you to explore the landscapes of one another and see if you're a good fit. If you want to have deeper conversations, if you want to take this deck of cards on your dates or on your date night, or you think this would be a good gift for a couple, then go to createthelove.com slash cards. I put them at a really accessible price of 30 bucks, and I can't wait for you to check them out. They've received rave reviews. People are loving them. I have actually one friend who took them out on its second date with someone that she was hitting it off with. And after she got the answers to the questions that the deck provided, she realized that this person was not a good fit and swipe left and now is in a relationship with someone she loves. So that's what dating is about is it's about filtering. And also my intention is to support you along that journey to not just finding the person that you want, but if you're with them, asking the questions that help create and deepen intimacy. So go to createthelove.com slash cards and grab a set now. So, you know, without further ado, what I need you to do first is please, wherever you listen to this, subscribe to the podcast, give it a five-star review, give it a written review that bumps it up the ranks, that gets it into more people's ears. That really helps out for me. So please, please, please do that. And yeah, I'm so excited for you to hear today's guest, Francis Weller. Here you go. I have told all of you how excited I am uh, for this episode. I have the opportunity to chat with Francis Weller. So welcome, Francis. Really appreciate you being able to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Mark. So as you know, because I was communicating you uh, with you through email about how impactful your work has, has been for me, this merger of the psychological with the spiritual, which, you know, I've always had a real draw into the academic and research, but I also felt like there was something sort of missing that it didn't feel like it had the the soul contained within it, the conversation about the soul and, you know, that there's so much unknown in how this world works. And your work has really been a window into that, that it's been a merger of that. So I really appreciate it. Well, ironically, there's very little soul in psychology these days. It's more selfology. It's, it's all focused on the self, and the self is fine to pay attention to and how it's shaped and how it functions, but the deeper dimensions of soul rarely ever, ever get touched in psychology, which is a tremendous loss. So my teachers, the people I've been studying with for years and decades, uh, they've really paved the way for that kind of reclamation of soul as the primary focus of the work, the study of soul. Psychology is the study of soul and how soul moves through us and functions through us in ways that are oftentimes very different than the ways that my personality would perceive how I want to live or should live. Soul pulls from a much deeper reservoir of imagination, desire, dream, grief, sorrow, loss, death. Uh, Its dimensions always have been associated with depth, and that's where we are being taken right now as as a culture, as a planet. Yeah, I mean, in the last year of my life, I've experienced a tremendous amount of grief. And I, I really learned to fall in love with it in a lot of ways. To I found so much beauty in it. I found so much of myself in there. And listening to your words in that conversation about, you know, I, I know in one of your programs, you speak to that we are in an ascension culture, in this culture that's about the hero's journey and rising and completing and, and really that there's so much to be found in the dark. 
Can you speak a bit to that? Well, <clears throat> the, the idea of binary systems has really been challenged these days, whether it's gender or even the, the whole idea of light and dark, ascension and descent. One without the other is neurotic. It's a one-dimensional thinking. So when we think, you know, in terms of our, our um, addiction to ascension, things always rising, getting better, the improvement culture. I mean, how much, how many times have you heard in your own work and the focus on self-improvement? It's always about improvement. And that, but that's not how psyche works. And it's not how nature works. Nature is not always improving itself. Sometimes it goes through profound periods of decay and destruction and death, fallowness. And psyche, our psyches were shaped in the context of nature over hundreds of thousands of years. So why wouldn't our psyches also be akin to the patterns and rhythms of nature? We need the darkness. But in that binary system of light, good, darkness, bad, whether that comes in skin tones or in terms of our ideations, we have lost a relationship to the darkness that is profound. And in the absence of that relationship to darkness, we don't know how to understand times of descent when we're taken down below the ground, whether that's through grief or through loss or through depression or through suffering of any kind or through collapse of structures like we're experiencing right now. We don't know how to relate to it. So we keep scrambling to try to get back up to the, to the light, to where we can see what's going on. But what psyche, what soul invites us to do in times of loss like that is to develop a second kind of sight, to learn how to see in the darkness and, the, and to discover the holiness that dwells in the darkness. I share that passage by uh, Rilke where he said, and yet no matter how deeply I go down into myself, my God is dark. And like a webbing made of a hundred roots that drink in silence. I mean, think of your heartbeat right now, Mark. It's beating in utter darkness. Thank goodness. We hope it never sees the light of day. <laughs> True that. And the trees and the plants, that's all happening in the mystery underground, that they're absorbing minerals and the mitochondria, the um, uh, mycelium and the microbes and everything's working to create what's happening up here. You were you were conceived in utter darkness in the womb of your mother. Mm. Tell me those things aren't holy. Tell me that's not where the sacred also dwells. So part of our problem right now, part of the necessity of our work is to recover our relationship to the light, but also to to the dark. And that's where we find soul. Soul tends to be found in the low places, in the shadows, on the margins, in the depths. When you read the fairy tales and the myths, it's usually a, a matter of descent that you uncover the wealth, the riches, depth, the imagination, the dream world, and you find the departed souls. That's where soul lives, in the underworld. But we're very afraid of that world. Yeah, I was just going to ask, do you think we're terrified of it? Because I feel like what this circumstances in our, our planet right now have really explicitly shown what's always been implicit, that that we are going to die and that we are facing darkness. But it's so in our face right now that it's, do you believe it is in essence a really uh, abrupt initiatory process, like a really uh, explicit initiatory process? 
And maybe explain what that means first, <laughs> as I say, initiatory process. Initiatory uh, process, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how abrupt it is. I think it's been brewing for some time. Initi- initiatory process is any uh, invitational experience, direct or indirect, conscious or unconscious, that radically alters our sense of who we sense ourselves to be. Our identity is radically altered in any kind of true way in initiation. And if we follow that thread out, which I hope we can do a little bit today, the consequences of that are enormous. When you go from an adolescent posture, which is very self-focused, which it needs to be, you're still discovering who you are in the world. But at initiation in traditional cultures, that's when the, the focus begins to migrate away from the self and out to the commons. You begin to notice what's happening to the community, what's happening to the watershed, what's happening to the migratory patterns. You begin to pay attention to the community and not so much to yourself. Well, our psychology has kind of forgotten that and has kind of consistently reverted our attention back to ourselves. So we have a culture right now, I I use that word very loosely, we have a society of individualists, mm-hmm. but very few of us paying attention to the welfare of the commons because that initiatory threshold really hasn't been honored or more fully embedded in our psychic lives. We're still interested in my life, my story, my experience, my wounds. Nothing wrong with that, but we're missing an entire segment of the populace who are saying our wounds, our future, mm-hmm. our needs you know, the collective body. What we're entering is what I I call, we're entering the long dark. This is not a time for optimism. It's not a time for hope. It's not a time for uh, success. This is in the old alchemical language that we are entering the negredo, which they called the blackening. And this is a necessary time, the blackening. the, The negredo time was a time of shedding, a time of endings, a time of decay. It was called the subtle dissolver. When the, when the negredo would come into your life, things would dissolve. Well, there's a collective negredo as well. We are watching these systems of white supremacy, gender, um, what would you call it, gender judgments and um, economic injustices. We're watching these systems collapse by necessity. Mm-hmm. So that is a collective initiatory time. And when you've probably heard me say in the initiation series, uh, just because we're invited into an initiation through illness or through love or through darkness or through uh, wounding, that doesn't mean we, we automatically are initiated. We can still miss the bus. <laughs> you, can still say, you can still refuse the initiation. You can still clamor back to try to bolster up old structures and reinform and reinvest energy into dying and decaying structures and try to keep them up for another 10 years, another 20 years. But what, at what cost would that be to our planet and to our people to try to keep reinforcing these systems that are clearly destructive would simply lead to more destruction. And my fear is it would lead to a, a more of a crash than a fall. Mm, than, a, than a sort of graceful, painful yet transformative experience where we're conscious mostly of what's being invited of us as we enter and and stay in that darkness. 
Yeah, there would be at least some sense that I could participate and collaborate with that rather than being thrown to the ground and the destruction could be enormous. Well, I think as individuals, we, I think most of us, I, I know for myself specifically, I've certainly chose to miss a few initiatory buses on my way only mm-hmm. to find that then what comes is a freight train and it's not optional. And there seems to be, uh, as you were saying, collectively and, you know, holding on to old systems, investing more so into the ones that are decaying. And also personally, that we double down on who we were. We double down on these things that try to, in some way, give us a semblance or maybe a facade of, of certainty. But it seems to be a sort of false sense of certainty. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. I think we... Um have to really have compassion for the fact that change is frightening. Mm-hmm. We get very used to the, I mean, psychology again says, you know, we should work on being centered. Well, change happens at the edges. That means we have to become eccentric. We have to leave the center and go to the frontier to go to the edges. And that's where soul is most alive. You always find soul at the margins of culture. We so we find soul at the margins of our own life. But we are prone towards centralizing our life, holding on to power, holding on to structures that we feel secure with. Jung would say, Carl Jung would say that change, any deep psychological soul change is an opus contra naturum. It's a great work against nature. So by by nature, we kind of want to stay fixated on what's familiar and known and controllable. But what happens is that change keeps insinuating itself on us. You know, know, depressions come, addictions happen, divorces occur, children get sick and die, you know, cultures collapse. These things throw us to the periphery, to the margins. And that's where we encounter what is most vital and most alive. So it's a risky thing. Initiation is a very unsettling process because you don't know where you're landing. You know you're leaving something. And so in the old languages, Mm -hmm. they would talk about the liminal phase. In the liminal phase, once initiation is undertaken, and remember, initiation means to begin something. It doesn't mean to finish. It means something has begun. So you've begun an initiation or you've been taken into an initiation, and then you enter a, a, a period of time where you're living in the utter unknown. Like when I'm working with cancer patients at the Commonweal Cancer Program, I talk about rough initiations with them that no one goes out and say, yeah, I want to get cancer, you know. Mm -hmm. That'll change my life. That'll shake things up. But it does. It has the same impact. Your your life is thrown into a radically altered process because of this diagnosis. Now, you enter a time when who you used to be, I used to be a person, a healthy person who could, you know, run and jog and, you know, do all these activities. But suddenly now I'm going through chemo and I can't get out of bed and who am I now? And it's that process of dissolution again during the liminal phase when things dissolve and collapse, when we don't know who we are anymore. This is a time of faith, not in you know some religious ideology, but that there is there's some deeper presence in my psyche called psyche, called soul, that is actually taking me someplace that is actually more wise about my life than I am. Mm. That maybe I could actually surrender my own sense of uh, will and directiveness, that old masculine, you know, muscular, I've got this, 
to you know, landing in the hands of something larger than ourselves. And as we age, you know, I'm going to be 65 in a little time and getting ready for Medicare and all those, you know, big things. I could now look back and say, there was another hand here. There's a wonderful poem. I don't know if I shared it in that series by uh, Juan Ramon Jimenez. He says, I am not I. I am this one standing beside me whom at times I manage to remember and at others I forget. The one who remains silent when I speak, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who walks outdoors when I remain inside, the one who will remain standing when I die. Now, who is that one? See, that one gives me shivers. Yeah, me too. That's the one I want to know. That's the one I want to really put my fidelity behind and my fealty and my devotion and... I want to live out of that depth. And that's what initiation really is about, I think, is breaking us open to a greater devotional life beyond myself. So initiation was never meant for the individual, ever. It was never intended to make me a better person, a more individualized, individuated human being. It was an act of sacrifice on behalf of the community to which I am now beholden. That's what it was about to extend our identity outward so that I am now part neighborhood and part watershed and part cloud bank and, you know, part lichen and part uh, dream. But I'm not just Francis anymore. You're not just Mark anymore. That's, that's the power and beauty of initiation. And that's partly what we're missing right now is having people whose sense of identity is co-mingled and entangled with everything that surrounds us, from moonlight to, you know, the neighborhood empty lot. Mm -hmm. I think of sitting in that space, the the liminal, the the poem you read of of the space between my words. It's sort of this concept of forgetting who you think you are, forgetting who you are, and and allowing what is to become. And and that, you know, it seems like we have a lot of distance from the from the soul. Like we have a lot of distance from even that idea of surrender. Our 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 systems, our societies are, are built upon being busy, being addicted, buying more things. Nine to five. You have a great line in in uh, Alchemy of Initiation where you mention like the quickest way for the soul to die is to work from nine to five in doing a repetitive behavior. Which no judgment if that's what someone does. It's really been designed that way. That's not why we were actually meant here to be here. We we're meant to work with the land, to be part of the cycles of life. And as you're expressing that, the initiatory process is a sacrifice for, or, or a thing we go through for the community. And I love that. And that, of course, is if the community in and of itself sees wisdom within your sacrifice, within your initiation, within your humanness, your divorce, your mistake, your whatever it is, that it actually sees that you are actually a wisdom keeper rather than someone who should be shamed and exiled. And I'm curious in today's, you know, because we individually can talk about these things and everyone listening can say, oh yeah, I want more of that. That's what I want. It's where my humanness, someone says, come back and bring me the goods. Tell us what you learned. How do we do that in this? Because you speak to contained and uncontained 
initiatory processes. And I'd love for you to explain to the people listening what that means and how might we get to containment? How do we take an uncontained uh, experience, which our, our society seems to be in? How do we begin to create a container? Well, there's about five lines of thought that we could follow. <laughs> go, go wherever you're drawn. Go wherever you're Let's, drawn. But I'd uh, love people to know the difference between yeah, contained and uncontained. Yeah, that's a good place to start, I think. Um, as I was sitting with you know people in my practice and people in the cancer program and people on my grief rituals and all the work I've done over the past 35, 40 years, you begin to see parallels between things. And the parallel I saw between traditional initiation, which I've been studying for almost you know, 35, 40 years, and rough initiation became to become quite self-evident that they take us to the exact same places. I call traditional initiation a contained encounter with death because there is no initiation without some kind of brush up against death. If there's none of that, then all you've had is a nice weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, initiation requires that the initiate sense the gravity of this time. And most initiation traditionally lasted weeks and months, sometimes years. Uh, so it isn't a weekend workshop. It isn't, you know, it's not a quick thing. It is a, to, to radically undo the psyche takes time and to meld it and to wet it in this in a deep w-e-d not w-e-t but wet it to the land takes a long process of cooking the soul so initiation is really about heat it's really about cooking uh, ripening the soul and that containment is provided by five valences the first one is it requires community it requires a certain energetic which would be ritual a certain uh, spaciousness called, or the sacred, requires ample and uh, sufficient amounts of time and requires place. In other words, you're initiated into a terrain. You're not initiated into space. You're initiated into a, a, a place that you actually identify with. So when you watch or hear reports about indigenous people in South America or in Africa, fighting to the death to protect their land base from incursions of oil exploration, it's because the land is not separate from their psyche. Mm. They have been, through initiation practices, fused with the land. Uh, so their identity is, is in those stones, it's in those creeks, it's in the forest, it's in the birds, it's in the, in the wildlife, it's in everything. That's their body. Now imagine that if we felt that same affinity for our wetlands and our, mm -hmm. you know, in our deserts. And so the fracking would come in and these systems of destruction, there would be such a violent protest against that, an outrage against that, because you're hurting our body. But we don't have that. So it's, it's an abstraction. It's a moral thing. It's a good thing to protect it, but it's not so intimate. Yeah, it's not within you. It's not like you're, you know, if someone was to attack someone's child. Right. It's, it's that same response. It's of, that same response. And I get that. The more I am, uh, the more I accept the invitations, the more I can't, you know, st I could never step on an ant anymore. I can, you know, you start to feel like the blade of grass is you. The yeah. And how much it gives to us, how much the planet gives and we are, we are we have been taking for a while and you know in relationship takers aren't great so why are we okay with ourselves being that 
Well, we are an extractive culture. Yeah. We're an entitled culture. And that entitlement, I want to get back to that, uh, that uncontained encounter, but this is an important little piece here that in the absence of those primary satisfactions that we evolved with over hundreds of thousands of years of being in community, of going through initiation, of, of sharing the stories at nighttime under the stars, of being around the fire, of sharing food, you know, every day, of sharing dreams. Those primary satisfactions gave contentment on some deep level to the psyche. We don't have those anymore. By and large, those have been utterly abandoned and forgotten. We live in a time of amnesia. And so then we go after consumption, uh, privilege, wealth, rank, power, these are all secondary satisfactions. They're all in a sense a form of addiction. And you ask any addict, you can never get enough of what you don't need. You always want more. Why is it that we're always wanting more? There's this kind of feeling of never being satisfied, never feeling satiated at some deep level. Well, I can tell you in all honesty, and I'm sure you've had this experience, when you're in ritual space, when you're doing deep soul work as a community, you're not wondering what's on TV tonight. You're not wondering when the next iPhone is going to come out or the next new car model or the next, you know. You're inside of something that your soul goes, hmm, home. Yeah, I get that in the forest, you know. You get that sense of being held. You don't need Instagram. You don't need anything. No. It's the magic show, the miracle that is yeah, in front of you. You're in it. Yeah, so then back to uncontained encounter. encounter. I call trauma, I call uh, what we're encountering right now as a culture an uncontained encounter with death. So we become, in a sense, saturated with death through suicides and violence in the streets, through gun deaths. I mean, look at the number of gun deaths just in this culture. We have more deaths per capita in this culture than any, I think, all the rest of the world combined on a, on a yearly basis. What is that? So we are we are encountering an uncontained encounter with death. So all of those other valences of, of community and elders and ritual and the sacred and space and time and place, those are gone. Those aren't present for us. So our encounters with, with initiation feel uncontained. And rather than breaking us open to the widest parameter, the widest aperture of identity, trauma collapses us down to a singularity where I feel cut off and separated from the living tissue of the world. You know, ask, ask anybody who's gone through trauma or ask anybody right now, they'll feel cut off and severed from that felt sense of continuity with the world, coherence with the world. So then you ask the question, how do we begin to provide containment with that? You know, mm -hmm. First of all, I think it's very helpful to understand where we are, that we are in a place and in a time that lacks coherence, that lacks a sense of uh, containment and being held. At the same time, we're wired for that. I can't tell you the number of times I've done a grief ritual or self-compassion or reclaiming ritual or a gratitude ritual. At the end of it, the participants will say, you know, I've never done anything like this before in my life. But this felt oddly familiar. It's as if we're wired for this. Our, our, our archaic psyche, our deep time psyche, carries what Carl Jung called the unforgotten wisdom at the core of our being. This unforgotten wisdom remembers what it's like to be in ritual space. 
And why are people right now, when I'm trying to offer a grief ritual, why do these rituals fill in a matter of hours? Mm. Something is happening in the psyche of the people. The, the, the denial level is, is cracking. We're beginning to realize that, that the fictions of the heroic individualized self is insufficient, that we need something larger. We need to begin to confess our, val- our vulnerability to another human being and to have that recognized and held even to a modest degree. We don't, have to have, we don't have to start out grand and have, you know, big rituals of initiation. That's probably going to take generations. We've begun that process in our work here. But we, we can begin to welcome people back from their rough initiations. We can ask people to come back and tell us the stories of how you were wounded, the losses that you encountered. And they're doing this a lot with soldiers. Ed Tick has done a lot of work with, and Michael Mead has done a lot of work with soldiers returning from Afghanistan, going back to working with Vietnam vets, having them tell their stories, providing some rituals of resolution and reconciliation to, in a sense, help them escort them out of that warrior phase and into a phase of being, you know, discharged. So you're not carrying that same charge of the trauma, of the grief. You give, it, you give it a container for it to be expressed and felt. There was an interesting study, I think I mentioned it in the series, where they were working with a group of Native American soldiers who had just come back from Afghanistan, all of them diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And they put them through the conventional psychological treatments that we have available right now. And they had about a 40% recovery rate. Not great. And then they put them back... They said, well, let's try something different. They put him back into sweat lodges, pipe ceremonies, and vision quests. The recovery rate more than doubled. Wow. Then they thought, well, this might, might just be a cultural phenomenon. So then they tried the same things with non-Native soldiers, and the same thing happened. And that deepened my understanding mm-hmm. of what I, I, what I sense is trauma, collective or individual, rips us out of that sense of belonging to the greater web of life. And what ritual and community do is it sutures the tears. It begins to knit back that sense of cohesion again, that I am part of something bigger than my own fractured self, that there is actually a place of welcome and belonging for my being. And that's what ritual and community have always done. So some, I don't know, a year or so ago, I was doing one of my continuing education classes that I have to take for my license. My wife went along with me. We went down to Spirit Rock, which is a meditation center here in Marin County. And we were attending a class by Rick Hansen, who wrote Buddha's Brain and Resilience. And he's a neuropsychologist and looking at all the ways that Buddhist psychology and the new neurosciences really can help us deal with trauma and so forth. It's brilliant stuff. I love it. As I'm sitting in the class listening to all of these interior practices, you know, how do you modulate and regulate out of a trauma state? And, and I recognized, I thought, you know, for the first 200,000 years, human beings did this in ritual space together. That was the recalibrating mechanism. It was communal ritual. Mm. When the rituals disappeared, we had to begin to recalibrate towards individual practices. Not, not one's good and one's bad, but we need both. We absolutely need both because I think grief has always been communal. I think initiation has always been communal. I think, you know, gratitude has always been on some degree communal. 
So we need to re- re- reanimate these communal practices because the psyche is waiting for that signal frequency. Like, oh, there it was. I was inside that signal frequency. That piece can be set down now. If you notice in your own psychological life, you repeat things over and over and over and over and over and over again because the signal frequency hasn't been verified. You didn't get that corresponding reflection back from the community that says, we see you, Mark. Mm. We know you've done that now. You can step through across that threshold. You can go you know, to the next piece of your life. That's done now. So without that reflection, without that return, without that homecoming, our psyche thinks that something is still not right. I didn't get, get it right yet. So we, we, we get caught in repetitions over and over again. Yeah, I, I think of that witnessing, that like just being witnessed in your own humanity is so healing without judgment, without anything, but like here is home for you no matter what. Actually, especially because you just went out on these missions that we didn't even know you were going to go on and you are now have so much to share. It's, I, I, I don't want to say it feels insurmountable, uh, because it, I don't think anything is. Nature doesn't design anything that way. But I, I, I'm just so curious as to, you know, when I see so many communities are in such grief, but they are trying to heal it through, uh, or they're not consciously trying to, but the healing is attempted through being isolating oneself, through going on Instagram, through trying to seek it. And maybe people, you know, of course, things like podcasts can be helpful. You can feel witness because you all of a sudden see or through someone's art, through Mm -hmm. the internet, you know, you can see that there's someone else who's been through something you've been through. But so often what I see is that people go to their families hoping that that's where they will have the homecoming but often the family themselves uh, are are still in an adolescent, you know, sort of well, suspended initiation. And maybe we could talk a bit about what that looks like. But, you know, I know in your program, you talk about that we are in an adolescent culture and it very much feels like that. And as you try to adult around adolescence, that also feels maybe in a bit isolating to, you know, maybe a bunch, it's weird to even think of myself as calling myself an adult here. So I'm going to be careful, but, you know, to be able to, you, you sort of see it in other people and you stop trying to chase it within the adolescent, maybe your own family, maybe the community you currently reside. Well, that was one of the reasons why I did that series was to show people that you've all had encounters that could qualify as initiation. You know, no one is bereft of enough material. <laughs> That's we've so true. All, we've all suffered enough. We've all been taken down during times of darkness. We've all hopefully encountered some time of love and intimacy. We've all been wrestling with this energy that I call the predator that kind of confronts and challenges us to show up. Um, So there's no lack of material, but there's oftentimes a lack of perception to see it for what it is. In this heroic culture, we see these encounters as either marks of our deficiency. We feel ashamed of our wounds. We feel like somehow I failed when I go into darkness. Uh, We don't see them for what they are, as invitations towards revelation, invitation towards some deeper uh, embodiment of that soul identity. If we can begin to imagine that and see these things for what they are, then we have to begin to be willing to let go of the adolescent identity. You know, I was talking to someone the other day in my practice. Oh, no, it was was with some friends. 
they're saying, well, yeah, we were in a, I was in a circle of men the other night, you know, socially distanced. But everyone is talking about their longing to belong. And I, and, I, and I got a little irritated by that. And these were men in their 50s and 60s. I said, at some point, we have to stop being the one looking for homecoming. Mm-hmm. We have to be the one that's offering it. Mm. That transition. Yeah, yeah. Because as long as I'm identified as the homeless child, the one who didn't get welcomed back, which is true. I'm not yeah. denying that. And that's a deep grief and a deep wound. But at some point, I have to make a pivot and say, but I can also, because of that wound, finding the medicine of welcome. Mm, that at some point, you grow out of being the child seeking the home and become the home which you learn is necessary and what is necessary for the feeling of home from the adventure and the wound that it set you upon. It set you yeah. upon this specific path. So that's a, you know, in your other audio series, um, Living a Soulful Life and it being about the journey of becoming an elder. I mean, that really, we as a culture don't really value our elders. You know, we don't we haven't, at least. And I speak specifically to more North American culture because I know that's not true of all cultures. That's certainly not true of the indigenous peoples. So that to me is also this value that we, if we valued the initiatory processes, if we valued them, then we would see that elders are actually the very people we should all be like, just tell me all of it so I don't do those well, things. You know. Well, I don't know if elders are there to prevent us from having our own encounters with life. Mm-hmm. I think they begin, they're there to tell us that they're inevitable. Mm. And that they're survivable. They're survivable and that we have resilience and that we can find the wisdom in those moments, that they're not reflections of your inadequacy mm. or your incompetency or your worthlessness. They are the inevitable encounters with being in this body. You will, t- you will fail. You will be defeated. You will know loss. You'll know death. You'll know all these things that, just happened because you, you've taken this form. But in a heroic culture, where you're always supposed to be successful, climbing, rising, all those other moments of failure and defeat are seen as marks against my being. Yeah, weakness, especially in masculinity. Especially in this kind of hybrid masculinity that we have. It's a, it's a form of shame. Mm. So that's also part of what we're trying to you know, free ourselves from. Because that's, I, I talk to people sometimes, well, I'm trying to create a new sense of masculinity, you know. I say, please don't. <laughs> I say, please try to imagine what, what masculinities might look like. Don't singularity, don't make it a singularity again. Every time we do that, we exclude so much. Mm, that it's not one thing. That There's never going to be one thing. That's why so many of these traditional cultures had multiple imaginations around all of the gods and goddesses, all the deities. There was never one until very recently. Yeah. Now, now there's one. And what does that exclude when you when you narrow it down to one? Now we don't have the trickster in there anymore. We don't have the contrary. We don't have the one who limps like Hephaestus, who carried the limp. You know, this has to be a perfect god. Yeah. So part of me that's not perfect. I feel ashamed of. Not worthy of God. Yeah. Not worthy of God. So if I had, you know, if if we had multiple masculinities and I could begin to see the whole range of what that looked like, I could see me in various places. 
I wouldn't feel so defective or deformed or, you know, imperfect or flawed. I could say, oh, no, I limp like Hephaestus. I play music like Apollo. I'm drawn to the depths like Dionysus, you know. I'm not so good at the, you know, the, the power issue like Zeus. Maybe that's where I need to work. Mm-hmm. I'm just using that Greek pantheon. There's so many other different imaginations, but you get what I'm saying. Try not to get so, that's why I follow soul, because soul is a polytheistic being. It's a, it loves the multiplicities. It doesn't tend to, to gravitate towards singularities. That's where Hillman, James Hillman, one of my primary teachers, really differed from Jung. Jung talked about the self, kind of this centralizing principle. And Hillman says, I've never seen one. <laughs> I've never encountered one. There might be moments of feeling solid, but mostly I feel like a boarding house, he says. Mm. There are so many others here. And at night, we're populated by all these others. And those aren't my dream images. Those are soul dream images. I am dreamt at night. I'm not making that dream up. I'm just a character in the dream encountering other imaginings from soul. That keeps the world animated, anima, soul, rather than dead and you know flat and predictable. There's so much more enchantment when you're living in, in that world. And you see the world is alive and full of beauty and uh, awe. Yeah, you're not you're not so stuck in self. You know, I love what you're what you're really inviting is that we we lose the boundary, the borders. You know, we lo- we melt away and be captivated by um, this collective experience. And it, it it seems as though this hero culture, where the very things that are the invitations to our own depth, our own expansion, our own soul are the things that have been labeled as weakness or as you know whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. So. It is thereby not part of the journey to go within them. And it, if, if it is, it's to kill them, you know, to kill the thing, to overcome it, to, to uh, conquer rather than to integrate, to melt, to, to alchemize. And, and that is such a it, it's interesting that we think that everything has to be conquered or done through some form of aggressive process rather than just a surrender, a silent surrender, maybe not silent, but. Certainly, uh, hey, I'm here and I'm ready. Well, that is the long shadow of the heroic archetype. You know, the archetype is beautiful. You know, in our adolescence, it's great to feel our our power and our you know our courage and our willingness to risk. And but when that stays a one-dimensional archetype for the whole lifetime, and particularly for a whole gender, then you're screwed. You know, because it becomes it becomes so singularly focused on my achievement and my accomplishments, my portfolio, my success, and the well-being, again, is lost. That, that, that's when that initiatory time typically happens, right when that heroic energy was really at its ripest. You know, in, in the, the Maasai tradition, they would say that's when the Latima is there. That's the inner fire. And not that you want to extinguish that, you also don't want to let it go rampant because that can burn down the village. You want to discipline it. The um, Spanish poet Federico Garcia Lorca said it's about discipline and passion. You want to hold that in a beautiful dance. It's like flamenco. You watch these dancers. They're so powerful. But imagine that power without any discipline. Mm. There'd be no form to it. But too much discipline and you kill the dance. 
So it's this extremely elegant dance between discipline and passion, you know, fire and shape. Keep giving it form, but not too much, you know. You know, too much fire and we're in trouble. So that's really part of what I think initiation is about as well, is teaching us to cultivate inner disciplines. And I like that term because it also comes from the same word as disciple. So it isn't a militaristic, again, that top-down, heavy-handed discipline. I'll discipline you. No, it's coming out of affection as a disciple, out of devotion. What am I committed to? What will I show up for? What will I, you know, yearn to protect and to serve in my life? That's discipline. Whether that's an internal discipline of caring for my body and for my friendships, my relationships, my, my soul life, or whether it's, you know, the larger body of the community. That's why I do the grief rituals. I'm trying to provide places of service that my gifts, my medicine can be, can be offered and, you know, hopefully valued. Yeah, it seems like we all need those, you know, a place where there's an invitation into the grief rather than, hey, let's let's anesthetize that grief. Let's get rid of dark feelings. Let's, you know, we live in such a culture that is that, that good feelings are good and the others we should do something about because there means there's something wrong with you. And I, I love that shift of thought that actually if you suffer right now it means you're open it means you're feeling it means it means you're here it means you're present because you can't be awake pay attention right now and not feel suffering no i think that's almost impossible i mean to have any sense of your own heart which is why grief work is so important that if we don't do the grief work if we don't stay current with it then our hearts will shut down by necessity because the pain around us is too great we have the idea of grief work is that the intention is to keep us in a state of being a verb and not a noun. You know, that wonderful line of uh, the Spanish poet, um, Jaime Gil de Biedma, he said, you know, I believed I wanted to be a poet, but deep down, I just wanted to be a poem. Mm. So we want to be a poem. We want to be a dance. We want to be a rhythm. And that fixed identity we were talking about earlier that's a thing. That's a rigid, confirmed, you know, almost immovable block. But what psyche wants is to be a verb. It wants to be that rhythm, that pulsating rhythm. And initiation breaks us open to that. Grief work breaks us open to that. That I am current in, that, in the true sense of that word. I am in, I'm in the present moment, but I'm also connected to the current of life, the electricity of life. Mm. I'm also in the current the river, a flow of life. So there's so many ways that we want to get current, but most of the time we're chewing on backlog. It's <laughs> so true. We're chewing on every every piece of our history. And now, as, as I, and I say that with a lot of compassion because a lot of what we're chewing on began generations ago. Mm. So we're we're dealing with a lot of ancestral grief as well. And so I say that like I say with no judgment. But I want, I want us to get current because there's so much to do here now and to participate in now, the shaping of a living culture. That's deep soul work. Soul loves a living culture with poetics and dance and ritual and community and, you know, conviviality. And those are the things that soul craves, as well as its own solitude and its own sovereignty. But those things are meaningless outside of that, again, that dance. 
I call it the double helix, where we live between sovereignty and intimacy, between the sense of my own deep interiority, which I love, but I also need to feel the fragrance of community. And it's the soul's dance between those two, you know, those two places of conversation between sovereignty and intimacy. We're always moving back and course, back and forth across that threshold. Mm, and that ability, so much of our relational experience or what we've inherited is to lose sovereignty for intimacy, is to throw sovereignty, maybe never having had it actually, not even to say to lose it, but to maybe not have touched it since our earliest child development, you know, how to fit into a family or, or whatever it may be. Well, we have, we have caricatures of that from, from men. And by general, I you know, generalize that term. We're taught not so much sovereignty, but uh, self-interest, self-containment, invulnerability. Sovereignty is not isolated. Sovereignty is, is a form of intimacy with soul in a deepening connection. And if you follow soul down deeply enough, it always emerges back out into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we've been given caricatures of these things. And so we either get into these places of enmeshment where we lose our sense of identity or we retain such a fierce sense of identity that we never come into the interplay with another person. And those are both adolescent states. The ripened adult human being knows how to stay in that flux between sovereignty and intimacy. I wish they would have taught that. <laughs> you had developed a, you know, I feel like my journey has been figuring that out rather than, you know, because you realize that uh, so much of what we observe and learn implicitly and sometimes explicitly about relational dynamics is is not that. And that's, that makes relationship a place that provides energy, that that becomes a place of soul that that, you know, you feel safe to dance. But yeah. when we associate relationship with the loss of self or the not ability to, to, to be, even to leave a relationship being such a gateway to actually access our soul, you know, but we shame even that activity so much. Well, we tend to, again, binary that system rather than seeing that as an interplay. So I see that in couples that I work with and I saw it in my own marriage too, where when I feel the pull towards sovereignty, I have to break the relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's what couples t- end, end, end up doing. Or then, well, God, I'm really lonely. I need to be back in relationship. <laughs> and then I fuse with another human being. Oh, shit, I'm I feeling did it again. I'm in my space again, you know. But that's, that's, again, the adolescent way of doing it. But the fully ripened, like when I take time to myself or with my friends and my wife, uh, I come back to that marriage enriched. Mm-hmm. My sovereignty, times of solitude, my times of writing, my times of walking, taking my walks, or being with my friends. I come back with nutrients for the relationship. And then my times in my marriage, my times in my friendships, I take that back to my sovereignty. They feed, it's like a double, it's like a Mobius strip. They, they just keep feeding each other. And that, that would be a healthier thing. And the same thing between my sovereignty as an individual and my participation in the community. Healthy communities require strong individuals. Strong individuals require a healthy community. You know, when we compromise either one of them, both of them collapse. So when we forgot to do initiations anymore, 
communities began to rot. And so now we're both suffering. There's no community for me to return to. And so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of isolated out here on my own. So we need to begin to reimagine the vitality of both of them, that the initiations that we go through are meant to help build up the community. And when the community begins to really become vibrant and robust again, it will begin to reimagine its role in sustaining and supporting strong individuals. It's an incredibly beautiful symmetry between the two. Yeah, I think about as individuals as we, you know, I'm sure for people listening, they're like, okay, I can think of a couple initiatory processes that I've been welcomed into and maybe not fully accepted the invitation. And so I'm curious first, you had mentioned like one of the first signs of being in an initiation is to have the sort of sense of self completely sort of uh, not uh, demolished, but certainly rocked. Uh, and then what might be some others? And then I'm curious is as we complete our own initiations, whatever that might look like, is it surrounding? Because I don't, do people have to have gone through their initiations to create communities that embrace that? Do you know what I mean? To be contained? I guess in some sense, yes. What, what we hope for is that there's at least a handful of people who will appreciate what you went through. And they won't ask you to defend it they'll ask you to share it. So when I worked with Seb for 17 years, I led a program called Men of Spirit, where I led, along with my team, uh, groups of men through a year-long process of initiation. And we conclude that process with a homecoming ritual on the last weekend. And we tell this group of 100, 200 people who've gathered, these men want to be spiritually employed. They went through this for you. They didn't do this for themselves. Make sure, and we, and we give them new names, and we, we, and we describe their medicine to the community. We said, this man has the capacity to sit with you when your heart is broken. Now, you don't make a living from that necessarily, but you can make a life from that. You know, This man knows how to welcome you if you have felt unwelcomed in your life. Sit with this man. He will give you his medicine. And you will feel a quality of homecoming ripple into your soul. So we tell them, you know, utilize these men. Make sure that they are, you know, brought into the community as vital contributors. That's a powerful way of having an initiation rooted in the body. Mm. This feeling that shift a community so much. And shift the community, yeah. So that the community now knows that there are, you know, there's five clans of men now in Sonoma County. There's clans in Oregon and Southern California. You know, there, there are clans of men that, and when we started this process, it was meant to, like we said, if you're only interested in your personal growth, don't bother. We don't care. But if you're interested in the generations that follow, show up and we will help you. We will help to craft, uh, you know, a, your medicine so that it, it can be delivered to the community. You ask what other signs of initiation are there? Yeah, that we're in an initiation. Well, just using the most obvious one, like the cancer patient, um, the first first recognition that you entered an initiation is that there's a radical severance from the world that you were living in. So I'm no longer, like I said, a person without cancer, or I'm no longer a person who hasn't been divorced, or I'm no longer a person who hasn't dealt with addiction or depression or 
you recognize that there is, there's been a severance. There's been a leaving from the world that you are, that you were in. And you began to feel that my sense of who I thought I was just doesn't hold anymore. And the third thing, and the most scary one, is there's a realization that you can never return to the world that was. Mm. That's the scary one. And that's so true for us. Yeah. We can't go back to the way things were in 1950s, you know, in white America. We, we don't want to go back. I mean, when you really begin to see it as initiation, you realize that the, the goal should never be to go back. Initiation occurs to take you into something radically altered a new sense of identity, not just a reiteration of the old one, a refurbishment of the old one. But you're being asked to really leave behind what was. And that is scary. I, again, have mm -hmm. tremendous, tremendous appreciation for anybody who's gone through trauma. You can't go back to that world of innocence, of everything's fine. You know, that, that world is not accessible anymore. So now you have to go the hard route of digesting the material of your initiation. And hopefully, again, the long walk with that, that digestion process, ripening you into somebody who carries a tincture of medicine, not only for your own life, but also for the community. I think one of our deepest depressions, Mark, is that we don't feel like we are, that we're needed, as if I have nothing to contribute but my, you know, the job I got trained to do. Yeah, so true. Great to have a job, but you also have a calling. You came here with medicine. I've never met anybody who doesn't have something that they could contribute to the world. Yeah, I remember my first dance into even that thought because, you know, I grew up, went to Catholic school, uh, grew up in Canada. And I remember when I went through an engagement that ended, it was the first time, you know, I was supposed to get a job, get married by this age, take be a good provider, make this amount of money. And I remember when I went through that initiatory process, although I wish I had the language, <laughs> I, called, I called it a deep rock bottom. Um, and in that, I remember reading Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that was the first time I'd ever even thought like, oh, I'm not just here to be a sales rep or like I actually, my soul had been calling for that. And, and then as I accessed creative endeavors, which I had severed myself from because Art, you can't make a living with art. You can't write all these things that our robotic, systemized culture has got out of us. I started to feel again and see just like how little I knew about relationship, how little I knew about um, what truly being alive meant. I think about all the things that you've shared and I, and just how when I look back, one of the things that I loved that you shared in your audio series, which everyone must buy all of Francis's audio series, they are incredible. He did not pay, I found him. So that's how sincere this is. Uh, but one of the things you said that felt incredibly freeing was that the initiation itself is not personal. Like when you said alchemy doesn't care about the alchemist, I thought that's so true. Like the the cocoon doesn't give a shit about the caterpillar. It just cares that you become the, your fully expressed self. And mm -hmm. that really changed it. Although it is personal on an ego level, on a human me, Mark level, when, and for anyone who's gone through anything, it's not dismissing that, but it's saying it's inviting us, which that's so interesting to consider that, that 
you can't take back what occurred, but you can find the medicine in what occurred. That's well said. That's well said. Yeah, the initiations are not personal. They're not, again, like I said earlier, they weren't meant for me. I can't find that culture anywhere on the planet who take their youth through initiation just for their own sake. It's to prepare them. It's to temper them. It's to ripen them so that they become caretakers of the commons, of the community, so that the community can continue to thrive and be healthy and know how to respond to crises and threats and, and traumas and losses. So you become ritually illiterate. You become an elder in the long run of that process. So yeah, it's, it's not meant for me, but at the same time, it does break me open to a much wider vista of imagination and participation. In a sense, it frees me from my loneliness. It gives me a sense of how intimate I am with sunrise and starlight and, you know, the touch of my grandchild, you know, all of that. My heart breaks open to that. I could cry right now. Just how, how much more intimate for a man who was raised with so much shame and so much self-hatred for the first 40 or so years of my life, to have that now be something I hold of profound compassion um, and to feel my sense of permeability with the, with the world. How gorgeous is that? And it's also, I, should, I don't want to just leave it so, so nice because it also means I'm constantly outraged as well. Mm, yeah, true. You know, a soul awake is one that is outraged, uh, particularly when you watch injustices upon injustices, violations upon violations. But again, that's another one of those great dances between beauty and appreciation and outrage and protest. Um, we have to keep fighting for the world that we feel would engender soul and engender beauty and engender belonging. That would be good work. Do you, you know, I want to make sure I'm honoring your time and I'm curious as to what you feel is being invited of us through this sort of collective initiation uh, that is occurring that's very in front of us, you know, this pandemic, the powers, the systems, as you said, they're all being invited to be reorganized. Yeah. And I'm curious, what do you, what is some work that we can do um, or what we're being invited to step towards uh, based on what you've, you've seen and experienced? I think that one of the most um, pernicious inheritances that we're living out right now is the ideology of individualism. Uh, that ideology is what's behind what I call the empty self. Individualism constructs a sense of identity that is separate. That's you over there and that's me over here and there's nothing between us. We're like cells bouncing off of other cells, but rarely do we meet for an exchange. You know, so that if we could begin to see through how much our conditioning exists around that. That's why I shared the idea out of, out of Tibetan medicine around Sok Lung. You remember that in the, in, the, in the series that these Tibetan teachers came to the United States and they were living here and they began to notice the condition of our hearts. And they said, we're suffering from Sok Lung. 
which is a blockage or a damage to the primary energy winds of the heart chakra. In other words, there's supposed to be this exchange, this current moving in and out from my deepest interior spaces to the most, you know, beautiful exteriors. And that's supposed to be current. But they say it's like this for most of us. It's been blocked or damaged based on the conditioning that we go through, which is basically the conditioning towards individualism. They say premature separation from mother, an absent or you know, unavailable father, a premature uh, emphasis on, on independence uh, in a highly competitive environment and a porous or non-existent community base. That's normal. Yeah, check, check, check. Check, check. That's what we call normal. But they say that's the symptom. That's the disease. So if we could begin to see through individualism as this kind of ideology that that creates this feeling of emptiness and begin to imagine entanglement, you know, so many things that are coming out of physics and science and biology and how wildly entangled we are. Like right now, my body is full of bacteria and fungus, and, and they're doing a beautiful job of keeping me alive. I am an interdependent system right here talking to you. I'm not a you know, solitary, singular individual, not even in my own body does that exist. And then there's the light that's coming that allows me to see your smiling face right now and hear your words through the vibrations that are carried in the air. The sun grants us these photons every day so we can have this exchange. You know, all of it is a gift. And we're entangled with every part of it. We're sitting on these chairs because the earth clutches us to her body lovingly. Independent? <laughs> that fiction is the fiction that, that I think is collapsing because of COVID, because of Black Lives Matter, because of you know, Standing Rock, because of you know climate catastrophe. All of that, that fiction is the most devastating fiction that we've inherited because it drives our consumption. It, it, it drives our supremacy. It drives all the things that are basically causing harm. So if we could dismantle the individual, it doesn't mean I give up my autonomy. Mm-hmm. It it, I can begin to relinquish that fictional sense of separation with everything, the tabletop, you know, my chair, every, I mean, I'm dancing with everything. We always are. That's, that's living into an animate world where everything is dancing. And you can't possibly not be in awe just even embracing a small minutia of what you just said, just you can't possibly, I mean, the fact that people will be listening to this and the sounds of our voices are vibrating their ears in a certain way that makes voices that is language. That is a sentence that makes some sort of resonance for them. You know, it shows you how uh, I don't think anything's by accident. Everything is so perfectly. Yeah. I remember being at a lecture many, many years ago by Brian Swim, who is a mathematical cosmologist. I love Brian's thinking. It's, it's just so massive. And someone raised their hand and asked the question. He says, you know, why are human beings here? We don't seem to serve any possible function other than damage. We, we shouldn't be here. And he said, no, we were put here to gawk. <laughs> We were put here for the sole purpose of being amazed. And our Mm. spiritual responsibility is rituals of gratitude, rituals of reciprocity and mutuality, 
to keep the whole thing shimmering. Now that's again, an initiated mindset. Yeah. So we're here to gawk, to be stunned, to be amazed, not to see it as utilitarian. What do I get out of it? But how do I appreciate it? How do I let its qualities saturate me and, you know, make me weep, you know, and make me love the world much more ardently? That's why, that's what a, an initiated human being would, would long for, to live into that singing world, which we are a part of, and to bring our song along into it. Hmm. To think about how even stepping into that in, in some small way means we have to stop participating in the ways in which we are um, utilizing the world rather than participating in its song, being part of the orchestra. We are just consuming the music as opposed well, to being part yeah, of Yeah, as long as we feel ourselves separate, we won't feel ourselves as intimate. And so as long as you're separate, you'll need to fill up that emptiness. So we will be an extractive culture. Every year we do this gratitude ritual. This is the first year in 20 years we haven't been able to do it because of COVID. And the ritual is so gorgeous. We build these grottos that you crawl into on your belly and you bring rose petals and uh, agates and cornmeal and uh, tobacco and you, you say thank you. And you deposit these on these cloths that are waiting for you. There's three of these crawling grottos that we build over three days. And then on the day, the next morning, the children crawl in there and gather these bundles together and we walk out into the woods where a, an opening has been prepared. And for one day of the year, we feed her. We put all of the, and, the, and, we, and we've made clay figurines um, with, as gifts. We, we go out and we gift her. And we say, this is nothing, but please accept. Wow. That's such a beautiful process. This small gesture of our appreciation for all you give to us day after day after day after day. So we have to feed her body. That's part of the reciprocity. You know, we can't take more than what she gives. And we do every year. That's why I say part of the spiritual work of an initiated human being is to learn the practice of restraint. That was one of my favorite lines where you said the soul moves at the at a glacial speed or at a yeah, geologic I, speed. Yeah, and I thought to myself, oh, soul is really asking me that one. Like the, my soul, when you said that, was like, do you hear the clock we run on? You know, and yeah, it's true. You realize as as you get more present and more as you eradicate the separateness, you become more present. And as you become more present, you realize that time moves so much slow, more slowly and that there's so much more to be witnessed. And uh, you are delivering medicine to this planet that we need. I'm so grateful for the way you put um, all of the things you consume into, uh, into a language that is, is palatable for even someone who may have never entered into the conversation of soul. Mm. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate that. I uh, bless you and your work and what you're trying to do and bringing these, you know, different perspectives out into the world right now that's desperately needing imagination and, and a widening and a loosening of that fixed identity. So thank you for all you're doing, too.
I, I just feel like there's no more important time than now. Like our planet needs us as opposed to us need what it has so we can be rich. You know, as we're no wealth matters when you have no planet and you don't have its nutrients. We can't create in labs what the earth creates in its soils. You know, even that attempt is shocking to me. But thank you so much for saying yes to this. It has been, a, you know, it's bucket list for me, for sure, and continued. I've, I've got talked to Francis again many times on the bucket list, just so <laughs> I'm going to set that out there. Uh, I would enjoy more you. conversations. You're welcome. I really, really appreciate, appreciate the questions and the reflections and and the depths of your sincerity. It means a lot to me. I'm curious for the people listening, where can they find more of you? And we'll, of course, put uh, the links to everything in the show notes, but just for people listening. Yeah. The best place um, to find the series and different things like that are at uh, FrancisWeller.net. And that's Francis with an I, FrancisWeller.net. Yeah, that's the best place to go. Perfect. So we'll link that out. And thank you once again for your time, for your knowledge, for your journey and your initiatory processes that have allowed you to bring um, these seats back to this community. So thank you. You're welcome. 